All right. Well, I'll tell you what, it is 831. So let's go ahead and get started. If, if you make sure you've got a Bible and uh, then let's go ahead and I'll open up. So let us pray. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Merciful and gracious Lord, you cause your word to be proclaimed in every generation. Stir up our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit that we may receive this proclamation with humility and finally be exalted at the coming of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 Well, nice to have you with us tonight. Thanks for coming and, and joining me for this. And we're going we're gonna to talk tonight. You can open up your Bible to Luke chapter 8. Uh, we're going to look tonight at verses 40 through 56. Um, it's an account that you probably know and have heard many times. But, and then also the handout we have, I've put it in the chat section. So um, if you go down to the bottom of your Zoom screen, you'll see the little chat feature and click on that. And then you'll see Zoom study five, the handout, if you, if you need to uh, look at that, if you need to refer to that. I also put my email address there in case uh, you wanna ask me a question later, um, feel free to send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. So tonight I'm going to talk about the slowness of God, and this is uh, an early church concept, something that the early church fathers uh, thought a lot about and talked a lot about. It is um, something that is important to, to consider in the art of witness, because the dynamics of our culture around us, uh, we are a, an on-demand kind of a culture, the way it is. So um, when, we, when we think about the slowness of God, not, not only does it pertain to uh, witnessing to people outside the church, but it also is pertinent for people inside the church as well. Because we are such an on-demand culture, uh, it comes, I think, largely from just everyday life. The fact that we are such a technological society, we have so much information that is streaming all the time. And we have these interesting cultural humanist dynamics that are going on all around it. And part of living in the secular culture, so here we are, right? We're we are uh, part of the church that lives in the world, in the world, not of the world. And so while we live in this world, we are still affected by the things going on around us. And part of living in the secular culture means that we all witness a development that's called exclusive humanism. And exclusive humanism sort of came to be from other things that that came before. But exclusive humanism is a self-sufficient humanism which accepts no final goals beyond human flourishing 
and nor any allegiance to anything else beyond human flourishing. So it has kind of an economic sort of spin to it. Secularization within exclusive humanism has uh, subtraction stories. And you could probably relate to this just kind of listening to news and different things like that. Subtraction theories are tales of enlightenment and progress, which carry forward modernity. And subtraction stories seek to eliminate accounts of belief and transcendent realities of God. And so subtraction stories look at like biblical accounts like Job or like Jonah, for example, and, and say, Jonah was swallowed by a big fish and lived to tell about it. And, you know, a subtraction story would say that can't happen. Uh, therefore, you know, science debunks it. And therefore, it's not possible. But I mean, if you look at Jonah, the story of Jonah itself, I mean, what it pertains to Jonah, it is a resurrection story, a death and resurrection story of Jonah. And subtraction theories, subtraction stories, seek to eliminate those kinds of things uh, and provide modern data as proof. Um, one of the interesting things about this is in exclusive humanism or in the secular culture, by getting rid of the, the notion of transcendence, um, or as anthropologists would say, enchantment, if you get rid of enchantment, you're stuck then simply with the here and the now and your empirical data. And that's all fine and well if you're moving along and life is good, but it becomes a challenge if there are things happening in your life, A, that you can't figure out or define, um, or there are no answers to the issues and the troubles of the day. And this is where the slowness of God comes in. And the emerging generation, so, you know, you have these different generations now, we're all sort of categorized. You, know, you have um, the baby boomers, and then you have Generation X, and I'm a Gen Xer, so raise your hand if you're a Gen Xer. <laughs> okay, I see a few of you. Um, then you have the millennials, and there's a lot of talk these days about millennials and how they process truth and reality and all of that. Then there's another generation coming behind the millennials, uh, typically referred to as Generation Z, or as some anthropologists are calling them, iGen, which I have on the handout. And iGens kind of come from the, uh, you know, Apple, you know, Apple computers and the the i iPad, iPhone, all of that. And it's because the iGen have spent their entire lives with some form of social media uh, and, and they have technology all around them and they've had it since, since they can remember. And they live with a high amount of angst and worry and 
they have more data at their fingertips than any other previous generation in its formative years. And so anthropologists say with iGen, it creates a completely different dynamic. They, they see so much in terms of information, but they don't have answers a lot of times or the ability to fix what they see in, in information. And so anthropologists say that iGen has a fear of missing out because, because they have social media. Every time friends have parties and they're not invited, they see that they've missed out. So they tend to move about with a, quite a bit of angst in that regard. Um, because of social media and its prevalence, uh, there is quite a bit of loneliness among that generation. And as I said, there's too much information, but there's not enough context or background study to supplement all that information. So every time they get information, it freaks them out, you know, and they don't know how to rectify the issues, solve the, solve the issues. And so all of this is sort of swirling around outside the walls of the church. And I would say, for those of you, you have grandchildren or you have children, they're wrestling with these things on one level or another. And um, it, it can be quite difficult and, and traumatic in some cases. So with all of this, then you have the church with our biblical accounts and our narratives and uh, our history and we have you know it's all surrounded uh, swirls around the passion of Jesus and so we have a rich rich charisma proclamation of transcendence God working in the world breaking into the world the scriptures are narratives and accounts over and over again of God breaking into the world and bringing change and help to people's lives. But outside the church, people do not have that large to a large degree, uh, especially if they're secular humanists, atheists, um, that kind of thing. And so there's philosophers and anthropologists talk about there's, the poorest self and the buffered self. And the poorest self would be that you absorb the holy, the transcendent. You have a perspective that invites it and you seek it. And so that would be the church. The church is porous. Christians have a spiritual porous kind of self. But the world outside, secular humanists, exclusive humanists, are buffered self they are self-contained the only reality they acknowledge is what's here and now that that which they can see that which they can define that which data supports and this is important when we think about the art of witness because we come with one perspective and secular humanists or exclusive humanists are looking at us sometimes like we're crazy, like you believe those fairy tales kind of thing. But take a look at 
a couple of uh, verses, well, not verses, but quotes at the bottom of page one from uh, Henry David Thoreau, who wrote Walden, Life in the Woods. This first quote is on, I think, like page three of his book, and he was a naturalist. And he says, but men labor under a mistake. The better part of the man is soon plowed into the soil for compost. So this is his naturalist perspective. I mean, he would definitely characterize himself as a buffered self. He's just a part of the cosmos and he's just one little grain of sand in, in the world of evolution. And then he has another quote later on in the book, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. So this is something that is very telling, I think. While people will deny the divine and the transcendent, the things that they can't answer, the, the, thing, the problems that they can't solve create this kind of desperation. But because of the exclusive humanist narrative, they can't say anything or they can't acknowledge. And so a lot of people in our world carry on with a quiet desperation. If life is good, maybe it's manageable. And this is one of the things I really struggled with in my atheist years. I hotly denied the existence of God. I thought it was a ridiculous notion. And yet the troubles that, that I saw or the troubles that I faced were unanswerable. And I mean, I had, I had five friends within a two-year period commit suicide. And, and this was like between my ages of 18 and 20 years old. And I just remember, it felt like in, in that period of my life, I just kept going to the funeral home and looking at these young people, my friends, laying in the casket. And, and this was an existential crisis for me because I did not believe in God. And yet I'm looking at people I knew and cared for that took their lives and I'm wondering why and what could have happened and why was life so bad and now where are they and what does this mean for me and what kind of world am I living in anyway? And so those kinds of things are very real for people who deny God, which, you know, we know this, right? But I mean, it's, it's, I think it's very important in the art of witness to think about these kinds of things. A good example of the poorest self, uh, and maybe you've heard this story a time or two in your in your Lutheran uh, upbringing or catechism or something or Bible class. You know, Luther when he I, he was in the castle and um, he claimed he saw the devil and he tipped the inkwell and threw it and it hit the wall and um, the castle Wartburg. And I don't know if anybody has anybody ever been to the castle Wartburg. Raise your hand if you've been there. It's such a cool thing to see. And there's actually you can see on the wall where he where he had thrown the inkwell and it's broke and splattered. And um, the peasants that came later uh, slowly like picked 
pieces of the ink off of the side of the wall. So there's kind of a hole now, but that's a good example of, of the poorest self where Luther claims he saw the devil and he throws the ink well. He, he believed in the spiritual and people that are empirical or uh, exclusive humanists would write this off and say that um, Luther was having a mental breakdown or, you know, um, he thought he saw something, but, you know, he was losing his mind or something, you know, they would, they would rationalize it and, and sort of end it that way. But for us today in our culture, we are dealing with a, a slow track movement from uh, monotheism to the, well, to theism or monotheism to deism and then finally to exclusive humanism. And it's rampant in our culture because over the course of Christianity or religious expression maybe would be the better way to put it in America is, you know, theism believes in a transcendent God who breaks into the world and breaks into the lives of people and bestows his grace and his love and his forgiveness into people's lives. And we would look at that as divine service. This is, you know, through word and sacrament, Jesus comes to us and uh, in, a, in a true way and blesses us, forgives us and strengthens us. But deism, as you may know, is different. Deism is a slight turn where Deists believe in God, that there is a God that created the world, and then he steps back after he creates the world, and then he doesn't interact with the world anymore. And so everything that happens then is on its own. And religion then takes on a different scope and a different perspective, because suddenly then with deists, we live to make the world a better place. Uh, the things that we do, we do for our neighbors. If we, if we worship, it's a human exercise. With deism, God is removed. And what this does is it causes an eclipse of grace, for one thing. Uh, it changes, as I said, the dynamics of worship. And the sense of mystery fades. And what happens is, with and so this leads into exclusive humanism, with deism, and I, and I put this on the handout in point two, Adam Smith, John Locke, with a deist stroke, saw that the ordering of this world was primarily for our neighbors, good moralisms, mutual benefit and exchange of goods and services, economic benefit. And this entails a shrinking of God's purposes. Life became this worldly then in the deist stripe. It causes an eclipse of grace. Um, it creates or facilitates a Protestant work ethic where people don't need God's grace, a Pelagian ethic. And instead of a God, a God of grace, he becomes the judge who will tell us how we did. And so this is markedly different from a sacramental viewpoint of the church's life god is now just with deists a judge 
who will tell us how we did. Did we do the right things? Did we, did we participate well in the economic benefit from neighbor to neighbor? And exclusive humanism then comes out of this because exclusive humanism, not it removes God. Well, naturalism removes God and then exclusive humanism takes another step. And then you have, you're left with an ordered, peaceful, productive world. And then you see, of course, organizations that, that do good, but they, they do not look to, to the Lord. And it's so important for us when we think about the art of witness and talking to people that what what we are trying to do is reconnect the sense of the divine into the lives of people. And Athanasius on the incarnation has a great quote, human beings were created for communion with God through contemplation of his word and image, the savior, Jesus Christ. So, okay. I'm going to run out of time again. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and I want to talk about, our account in Luke chapter eight, verses 40 to 56. And this is a, an example of protreptics where what you can do is you can talk to people, listen to their needs, listen to their pain, listen to their concerns and their struggles. So as I've said before, protreptics entails deep listening. And so there's a lot of good conversation with people, a lot of listening, and it will help you then if you talk about an account such as this, and you can connect some dots for people and they can relate. Because this account is fascinating to me because what you have is you have this Jairus, who's the, a ruler of the synagogue, so he has a place in the Jewish world and his name means um, he enlightens. So God enlightens and enlightens his life. So his name is significant. And he comes to Jesus and says, my, my daughter is sick and she's going to die. Please come and, and heal her. Now he believes that as long as she's alive, there's some hope. And this is where the slowness of God comes in because they start on the way. And so you can sort of think about this yourself, how you would feel if you were Jairus and you had a loved one who was dying and you had a bit of a journey to go, how would you feel? What kind of disposition would you have? Would you be really nonchalant and laid back and relaxed and say, hey, it's okay, Jesus, take your time. You know, we can stop and get a burger on the way. Everything's going to be great. Or would you be like, chop, chop, let's go. I'm in a hurry. I'm worried. Come on, Jesus, let's go. Well, we know how we'd, we'd be, right? And so they start on the way. And then all of a sudden, you've got all these people that are gathering around Jesus and they've heard the things that he's done. They want to see him. They want to maybe see a miracle, see something really amazing. And the effect, of course, is what? But they're slowing Jesus down. 
And, you know, I always think it's kind of like, you know, put it in our context today. It's like Chicago traffic, you know, whenever you've got to get somewhere into the city, that's when something happens, right? That's when the traffic gets bad. I mean, you know this, right? You've lived it a million times. And so this is what happens. And then all of a sudden we forget about Jairus. So you have this slowness of God that's taking effect in the text, but it shifts to a woman who has a flow of blood. And this woman, we are told, has been suffering with it for 12 years. And she has been through everything. She has, the Greek text literally says that she has spent her life, her whole life, everything on doctors, physicians to try to heal her. And they've all taken her money and she is no better off. In fact, she's worse off. And so this is one dynamic. She is in financial dire straits that way. But then think about some other things, especially if you're a nurse or you've been a nurse, you can you could probably tell us better than than me what kind of shape she would be in physically after having an issue with blood loss for 12 years. She's probably sickly. She's probably very weak. Um, if something doesn't change, death is probably imminent at some point. And so she has those physical uh, problems. And then now think about the religious side of it. Because if you had a flow of blood or any kind of a discharge, a bodily discharge, you were not allowed to go to temple. Uh, you uh, were to remain outside and away from people to kind of quarantine yourself, that kind of thing. And we can relate to that these days. And so she, if you think about this spiritually, then she also had no access, she had no access to the temple, which would mean she had no access to God. So what has happened in her life is because of her illness, she has been walled off into a solitude in every part of her life, financial, physical, spiritual. And the hard thing about it is there's no one to help her. And this was one of the hard things about these kinds of quarantines in those days was you were often left alone. You would either get better or you would die. And so if you talk to people about this kind of an account with this woman, people that are outside the church who are exclusive humanists and don't believe in the divine, they could at least relate perhaps like if they are going through job loss or uh, financial trouble or a chronic illness or loss of uh, re relationships or friendships, loss of loved ones, they can relate to this kind of a thing. And this is, this is where the rubber hits the road with the art of witness and procreptics because an exclusive humanist will say, there's nothing but what we can see. There's nothing but what we can uh, 
define with data. And yet, here's something they can't solve. If they are suffering in any way, they can't solve it. And it is when they can't solve it that there is despair. And this is a great opportunity to show that whether you like it or not, there is mystery. And what kind of mystery is it? Well, the kind of mystery that comes with suffering is, is, a, is a bad mystery with perhaps a bad end. But this is an opportunity to show Jesus and that holy mystery is good. And it often comes with the slowness of God. And so what do you see then? Okay, the woman, now she's not supposed to be in the crowd because of her flow of blood. She's supposed to stay away from people. So she takes a great risk. She has despaired of the world's avenues and the world's devices. And so she looks at Jesus and then she sees his robe and hanging from his robe are tassels. And what does she do? But in the, in the English text, it says she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. This is the ESV. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus says, hey, there's powers gone out of me. And Peter thinks he's crazy. Like, of course, you know, somebody touched you. Yeah, everybody's touching you. You know, what's the matter? You know, what's the matter with you? You know, kind of thing. And he says, no, the power came out of me. Well, so a little bit of background. I have this on the handout. There's a couple of really good verses that help this kind of flesh this out for us. Numbers 1538 and then Zechariah 8:23. Numbers 1538 tells you a little bit. Now, as you, if you want to go to that, you can take a look at it. But let me explain this. In Greek, the word for the, the fringe of the robe is kraspedu, and I have it in the handout. The kraspedu was like a tassel. And the tassel is explained there's so much symbolism in, in the Old Testament. So in Numbers 15:38, I guess I'll start at verse 37. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to pour a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So these tassels symbolize God's word, holy oracles of God. And so what we're getting from the text in the gospel then is Jesus has these tassels in good mosaic fashion, and she sees them, and of course, she has heard about Jesus and that he is able to do miracles and to heal. And so she reaches out and she grabs a hold of the tassel and she's healed immediately. 
And then there's one more verse. This is Zechariah 8, verse 23. And I'll start at verse 22. Zechariah 8, 22. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. So this is so rich because these are prophecies of Christ. And so here he is, He's got the fringe, the fringes, the tassels hanging off of his robe, but he himself is the fulfillment of, of these things and what they symbolize. And so here comes the woman. She comes behind him. There's symbolism in that. She stoops down and grabs a hold of the tassel and she's healed. And I often think about this, like what was going through her mind? But she's heard about Jesus. She's heard he can do things. Maybe she's heard that he's the Messiah. Maybe she sees the tassel and she's reminded of the very thing it's supposed to remind her of, the word of God. And then she grabs onto it. And what is she grabbing onto but the word made flesh? And in some ways, it's very symbolic that the woman in her illness, in her sorrows, in her troubles, in her solitude, she always went the world's ways, trying to go to be healed by the world's devices. And in the end, she grabs on to the divine. And it is by grabbing on to the divine that she is now healed, the answer to her prayers. And this is the art of witness. Um, this is protreptics. This is taking a narrative and doing exactly what the people, what, what you see in the text. People of the world scrape through life. They're doing their best. They're trying to make it through. They're trying to find love. They're trying to find joy. They're trying to find goodness. They want purpose. And on good days, maybe they can come close, but inevitably in life, because of the cycle of life, because of the fallen nature of the world, there's trouble, there's sorrow, there's sadness, there's illness, there's death, and there's no answer for it in the end. And so we look to Jesus. He is the one who comes to grant us the greatest gift, the spiritual gift, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of life. He comes to bring hope. And, you know, Pastor Bruzek going to talk a lot about this in his Zoom study, talk about hope. And this is where we can bring an entrance into hope. And so with that, then we get back to the text. So in the, in the text itself, the woman is found out. And so she is, stands up and says, I did it. You know, I grabbed on and 
she falls at the feet of Jesus. She is like the icon of the church. She is the icon. She is an icon of the world, a, a great picture for all of us, for those in the church and for those outside of the church. And Jesus then turns to her and says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. But the Greek is more striking because her life bears out the slowness of God. 12 years. But when Jesus announces absolution or forgiveness, daughter, your faith, the Greek literally says, daughter, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And so a couple of things, your faith has saved you. And it's the, the verb is in the perfect tense, which means, as you probably know, if you're a grammarian, I've got some grammarians out there, the perfect tense is completed. So this is where you would see the doctrine of justification, where Christ announces it and it's done. You're forgiven. And then you have the go in peace, but the word go is journey. So there's this constant language in the Bible of journeying, journeying with Christ. And so now this woman journeys with the church. So you go from implicit is solitude to now journeying with the church, restored, back among God's people, with Jesus, all good things. But then all of a sudden, and daughter, of course, is a term of endearment, but then the focus shifts back to Jairus. So we've got more of the slowness of God going on. And as we get back to Jairus, Someone comes from his house and says, don't trouble the teacher anymore. Your daughter has died. It's over. Now, there's something about this that among Jairus and his people, they thought maybe Jesus could heal someone who's alive. But death has a finality to it. Don't bother the teacher anymore. She's dead. It's over. No more hope. It's gone. It's shattered. But Jesus says, hey, let's go and do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And so they make their way, and here's more of the slowness of God. They make their way, and they get to the house, and there's people weeping. And here's a great example of the insincerity of the world that these mourners were likely professional mourners. So they had been paid to offer the service of weeping for the dead. And this, this connects in a procreptic kind of way. I mean, you can connect this with people in the world. Is the world merciful? Um, sometimes, sometimes not. Uh, can, does the world have recourse or any true help for this kind of sorrow? Well, no. And then when Jesus says she's not dead, but she's sleeping, then the mourners laugh at him and ridicule him, which is very much like the world. But then Jesus removes the people from the house and only 
the parents and Peter, James, and John and Jesus are allowed in to see this, this holy act take place. And then we see another icon, another picture of the resurrection. So if you've ever seen it, uh, if you've ever seen an icon of Christ's resurrection, uh, you know, you see these, you see these icons where Jesus is reaching down and the earth is kind of broken open and there's people down in the earth and Jesus is reaching down to pull them up. It's, it's the resurrection. And you see this same thing in the text. He, Jesus takes the girl by the hand and says, my child arise. And in verse 49, another great example of the Greek, death is also in the perfect tense, which means it's complete, no way of turning the clocks back. So Jesus does what people believe is impossible. He raises the dead. And then what does he do? But he has them give her something to eat, which is proof of the miracle. So in both cases, now there's several, a couple of connections. Both are have 12 in them, 12 years old, 12 years of illness, which is the fullness of life. You know, you have the 12 tribes of Israel, you have the 12 disciples. There's this sense of completeness with the number 12. And so Jesus comes at just the right time. And um, there's, there's actually a, a, good, a good scripture verse, um, Galatians 4, Galatians 4, verse 4. Yeah, that at just the right time, um, Christ comes. And so you have that text going. Let's see. In fact, let me just read this because it's so good. Let's see. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Yeah, that's what it is. Galatians 4, 4. And then you have, uh, well, there's a couple other verses, which maybe I'll get to, but we're running out of time. So this text is a great example of the slowness of God about how God does things in his time uh, to bring healing and faith uh, renewal. And this is one of the things that people really struggle with in the world. And on, let's see, this would be page four of the handout at the bottom. There's a couple of great verses that talk about the slowness of God. Second Peter three, verse nine says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then Habakkuk chapter two, verse three in the Old Testament, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, for it will surely come. It will not delay. And there's much to say about the slowness of God. It, it would be worth just spending an hour just on the slowness of God and the concept. 
like uh, Colossians 1 verses, uh, chapter 1 verses 10 and 11. So I'll start at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. And patience in Greek is macrothemia. I don't know if I can actually do this. Boy, I'm out of time. Doggone it. Let's see here. Let's see if I can do this. Yeah. Let me put this in here and you can see it. Macrothemia in Greek. It's in, I just put it in the chat. And what it is, is macro is to stretch something out. And themia is like your anger or um, it's hard to translate into English, but it's sort of like your um, passions. It's um, kind of the emotions. It's the things you go through. And so patient endurance in Greek is to stretch out these kinds of things that you feel. And when you stretch them out, the character changes. And so the slowness of God produces a deeper faith, a more enduring faith. It uh, creates a maturity of faith. And we truly become different people. And Christians understand this on some level, but when we're the ones going through hardship or struggle, it's hard to practice that and it's hard to understand it. But, and it's, it's true of people out in the world too. They don't understand why they suffer or what they suffer. And so not having a worldview that includes the divine creates an existential crisis. And these texts, these accounts of Jesus and the narrative really is an opportunity to draw in the divine into the lives of people. And of course, with us, we then lead to the altar. We lead to uh, the place where we pray. We lead to the place where the word of God is read and proclaimed. And this is where then God begins to do his work while we wait and he brings change. And I apologize. I'm three minutes over according to my, 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 my clock here. So let me see uh, John, the watchmaker that after he builds the watch steps away and lets the watch run. Yeah. That's the deist view of God. Exactly. Yep. So I use this text this particular account of the woman with the flow of blood and Jairus's daughter, when I talk to people who are outside the church, particularly if they're struggling with things they can't define, if they're having some kind of suffering, um, this is a great example to show the difference between the world 
and the, how, how limited the world is in helping people, and then God, and how God can do all things, and he loves us to the end, and he carries us through our troubles, and ultimately brings us to his, his and our home in heaven, uh, as we are covered with his, his holy blood, and as we are washed in his holy baptism. So, um, Procreptics and the art of witness uh, with the woman and uh, Jairus's daughter. So um, thank you for spending some time with me tonight. I really appreciate it. And uh, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you so much. And the Lord be with you and bless you on this fine fall night. <laughs>